Welcome to the Whistling Podcast. My name is Roger Baldofer. Today I'd like to present to you a reading of an Atlantic Monthly article from 1910 entitled A Defense of Whistling by Robert Haven Schaufler. This essay also seems to have appeared in a chapter in a book that he wrote called The Musical Amateur in 1911. Here is the first sentence of the Wikipedia article about Robert Haven Schaufler. It says, Robert Haven Schaufler April 8, 1879 to November 24, 1964. He was an American writer, cellist, athlete, and war hero. Schaufler published poetry, biographies of Beethoven, Brahms, and Schumann, and a series of books celebrating American holidays. Pardon me, Wikipedia, but you left out the best part. He was also a whistler, and if you take his self-assessment seriously, a pretty good one. Schaufler was a musician and a music scholar and mentions three composers that I had not heard of before, Cecile Chaminade, Vincent Dandy, and Max Reger. I guess I have some music appreciation listening ahead of me. Schaufler makes reference to a song called Wake Not But Hear Me Love, but I couldn't find any recordings or references to it in recent times. Seems to have been a poem from the novel Ben-Hur, but that is all I could find. All right. Let's get on with the article. Atlantic Monthly, 1910 A Defense of Whistling by Robert Haven Schaufler Whistling girls and crowing hens have been bracketed together by the wisdom of the ages. But bad ends have been allotted these ladies, because they have not as yet learned to perform in tune, not from anything inherently bad and whistling, per se. Go away. Unfortunately, the proverb has, however, by a fatal association of ideas, reflected on a noble art. Because girls and newsboys pipe ragtime without regard to the diatonic scale, why should my avocation be banned by polite society? It would be quite as absurd to consider singing Outre because burly baritones persist in roaring Wake not but hear me love at afternoon concerts or to put the piano down as vulgar because a certain type of person is always wanging chaminade, chaminade. out of season. For my part, I have never discovered chaminade's season chaminade. but then I am only a fiddler. avocation consists in whistling to myself the most beautiful melodies in existence, and I go about in a state of perpetual surprise that no one else does likewise. Never yet have I heard a passing stranger whistling anything worthwhile, but I have my plans all laid for the event. The realization of that whistle will come with a shock like the one child Roland felt when something clicked in his brain, and he had actually found the dark tower. 
I hope I shall not be a dozing of the very nonce after a life spent training for the sound, and so lose my man among the passers-by. When I hear him, I shall chime in with a second violin or cello part, perhaps, or if he has stopped, I shall pipe up the answering melody. Of course he will be just as much on the alert as I have been, and will search eagerly for me in the crowd. And then we shall go away together, and be crony hearts forever after. I am constantly constructing romances, each with this identical beginning, for what could be more romantic than to find by chance the only other one in all the world who shared your pet hobby? But I am growing old in the quest, and sometimes fear that I may never find my stranger, though I attain the years and the technique of the Pied Piper of Hamlin. The human whistle is the most delightfully informal of instruments. It needs no inglorious lubrication of joints and greasing of keys, like its dearest relative the flute. It is not subject to the vocalist's eternal cold. It knows no inferno of tuning and snapping strings. Nor does it need resin for its stomach's sake and its often infirmities. Its only approach to the baseness of mechanism is in a drainage system akin to that of the French horn, but far less brazen in its publicity. I love my whistle quite as much as I love my violin, but in a different way. They stand the one to the other, very much in the relation of my little, profanely extra-illustrated school Horace to that magnificent codex of the 5th century, the gem of my library. The former goes with a black pipe and a holiday, with luncheon under a bush by a little trout stream. The latter implies scholarship, or else visitors and Havana cigars. One of the best qualities of the whistle is that it is so portable. The whistler may not even have rings on his fingers, but he shall have music wherever he goes. And to carry about the wealth of Schubert and Beethoven and Chopin is more to me than much fine gold. Brahms is one of the most whistleable of composers, and my two specifics for a Blue Monday are to read Stevenson's letters and to whistle all the Brahms themes I can remember. I will begin perhaps with concertos, then run through the chamber music and songs, which I prefer without words, reserving the overtures, suites, choral works, and symphonies for a climax. The most ultramarine devils could hardly resist the contagious optimism of a Brahms whistling bout, and I believe that if Schopenhauer, that prince of miserableists, had practiced the art, it would have made him over into a Stanley Hall. Whistling to keep up the courage has passed into an adage, but the Solomons have said nothing about whistling to keep up the memory. Yet nothing is better for the musical memory than the game of whistle. A whistles a melody. If B can locate it, he wins the serve. 
If he cannot, A scores one. If the players have large repertoires, the field should be narrowed down to trios or songs or perhaps first movements of symphonies. I still feel the beneficent effects of the time when I used to sit with my chum in a Berlin cafe into the small hours, racking my brains and my lips to find a theme too recondite for him. For such purposes, the whistle is exquisitely adapted. One often hears it remarked that the violin is almost human, but the whistle is absolutely human, and unlike the violin, is not too formal to take along on a lark. Though it cannot sing to others, of infinite instincts, souls intense that yearn, it will stick loyally and cheerily by you through thick and thin, like the comrade heart for a moment's play, and the comrade heart for a heavier day, and the comrade heart forever an A. The whistle is one of the best tests of musical genius, not that the divine spark lurks behind truly puckered lips, but you may be sure that something is amiss with that composer whose themes cannot be whistled, although of course the converse will not hold. He lacks that highest and rarest of the gifts of God, melody. Certain composers nowadays, with loud declarations that this is the age of harmony, are trying to slur over their fatal lack by calling melody antiquated a thing akin to perukes and bustles and sour grapes. By changing the key twice in the measure, they involve us so deep in harmonic quicksands as to drown momentarily even the memory of Schubert. If this school prevails, it will, of course, annihilate my avocation, for I have known but one man who could whistle harmony, and even he could not soar above thirds and sixths. I shudder when I imagine him attacking a dandy, dandy. symphony. The whistle has even wider possibilities than the voice. It is quite as perfect and natural an instrument and exceeds the ordinary compass of the voice by almost an octave. It can perform harder music with more ease and less practice. It has another advantage. In whistling orchestral music, the drum taps, the double bass, the bassoon may be cued in very realistically and with little interruption by means of snores, grunts, wheezes, clucks, etc. The whistle's chief glory is that it is human yet single. Sometimes, especially during certain operas, I am inclined to think that when music was married to immortal verse, she made a mesalliance. The couple seldom appear to advantage together. Their winding bouts are sad public exhibitions of conjugal infelicity. Instead of cooperating, each misrepresents and stunts the other's nature. Both insist on talking at the same time, so that you can understand neither one plainly. And as is generally the case, the lady gets in the first and last word and shouts poor immortal verse down between whiles. You would hardly take her as she strides about red-faced and vociferous for the goddess to whom you gave your heart when she was a maiden. But there you must remember that I am only a fiddler who prefers absolute music and believes in the degeneracy of opera as a form of art. The whistle has almost as many different qualities of tone as the voice, although it is so young as still to be in the boy chorister stage. Who can predict the developments of the art after its change of whistle? 
I, for one, fear that it will be introduced into the symphony orchestra before long, and this I am sure will make it vain and destroy its young naivete and its delicious informality. It would be like punching holes into my dear old black pipe, fitting it with a double reed, and using it in the future works of Max Rieger as a kind of piccolo oboe. I go about furtively looking at conductor's scores for fear I may see something like this. Whistle one, whistle two, whistle profondo. But with all my heart, I hope that my avocation may not be formalized until after I have hung up the fiddle and the bow on the staff of my life as a sort of double bar. The end. If anyone is interested in pursuing the writings of Robert Haven Schauffler further, all of his books can be found on the Internet Archives, and two of his poems can be found on LibriVox, one called Golden Cobwebs in the Christmas Poetry Collection, and the other is called The White Comrade. I will leave you with The White Comrade, presented by LibriVox. See you next time on The Whistling Podcast. The White Comrade by Robert Haven Schaufler Read for LibriVox by Marianne The White Comrade After W. H. Lethem's The Comrade in White Under our curtain of fire, Over the clotted clods, We charged to be withered, To reel and despairingly wheel When the bugles bade us retire. From the terrible odds. As we ebbed with the battle tide, Fingers of red-hot steel Suddenly closed on my side. I fell and began to pray. I crawled on my hands and lay Where a shallow crater yawned wide. Then I swooned. When I awoke, it was yet day. Fierce was the pain of my wound, but I saw it was death to stir. For fifty paces away their trenches were. In torture I prayed for the dark and the stealthy step of my friend, who, staunch to the very end, would creep to the danger zone and offer his life as a mark to save my own. Night fell. I heard his tread. Not stealthy, but firm and serene, As if my comrade's head were lifted far from that scene Of passion and pain and dread, As if my comrade's heart in carnage took no part, As if my comrade's feet were set on some radiant street Such as no darkness might haunt, As if my comrade's eyes no deluge of flame could surprise, No death and destruction daunt, No red-beaked bird dismay, Nor sight of decay. Then in the bursting shell's dim light I saw he was clad in white. For a moment I thought that I saw The smock of a shepherd in search of his flock, 
alert were the enemy, too, and their bullets flew straight at a mark no bullet could fail. For the seeker was tall, and his robe was bright, but he did not flee nor quail. Instead, with unhurrying stride he came, and gathering my tall frame, like a child, in his arms. Again I swooned, and awoke from a blissful dream in a cave by a stream. My silent comrade had bound my side. No pain now was mine, but a wish that I spoke, a mastering wish to serve this man who had ventured through hell my doom to revoke, as only the truest of comrades can. I begged him to tell me how best I might aid him, and urgently prayed him never to leave me, whatever betide. When I saw, he was hurt, shot through the hands that were clasped in prayer. Then, as the dark drops gathered there and fell in the dirt, the wounds of my friend seemed to me such as no man might bear. Those bullet holes in the patient hands seemed to transcend all horrors that ever these war-drenched lands had known or would know till the mad world's end. Then suddenly I was aware that his feet had been wounded, too, and, dimming the white of his side, a dull stain grew. You are hurt, white comrade, I cried. His words I already foreknew. These are old wounds, said he, but of late they have troubled me. End of The White Comrade by Robert Haven Schaufler This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.